This message is brought to you by Desiring God. For more information, please visit desiringgod.org. Well, Bethlehem Baptist Church and Desiring God in Bethlehem College and Seminary, we'd like to welcome you to this seminar, Let the Nations Be Glad, with Pastor John Piper. This is the first time John has done this seminar on missions, even though he's done dozens of these Friday night, Saturday morning seminars over the years, and we're glad that you could be with us for this. Some of you may know that these seminars have previously been called TBI seminars, the Bethlehem Institute, which was our apprenticeship program and training program here at Bethlehem. And that program has now matured into a full college and seminary, Bethlehem College and Seminary. And we would love to have you take a look at Bethlehem College and Seminary if you're interested. There are tables here in the back for the college and seminary. Also, you can check things out online at bcsmn.org. Also, there's another one of these seminars coming just around the corner. November 11 and 12, the theme is corporate worship, and the title is Gravity and Gladness. That's November 11 and 12, and we'd love to have you join us for that as well. The format for the seminar is five hours, two hours this evening, three hours tomorrow morning. So a little warning ahead of time that it'll be two straight hours this evening, And if you would like to stretch or visit the restrooms, please feel free to do so at any point. Uh, The restrooms are out the doors through the commons. If you'll follow the little white chain fence there that's roping off the wedding reception party for tomorrow, you'll go right to the restrooms there. There will then be a a short break about 9 o'clock. And we'll come back in here to have a QA and a time with Pastor Piper. And if you would like to... Enter a question for that Q&A time. We're taking those questions via Twitter. Uh, You can do that from here or those who are watching on the live stream. If you would tweet your question and mention the name at Desiring God, then we'll be able to filter those with the at Desiring God tag on them and have those questions for the Q&A time. That'll be about 9.15 to 9.45 or 10. And then we'll break for the evening and begin at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Hopefully you received an outline for the seminar as you came in, as well as the red book, A Holy Ambition. This is a recent compilation Desiring God has put together of some of Pastor Piper's missions sermons from over the years. And if you would like additional copies of A Holy Ambition, or if you're interested in a case lot special where you can help us spread those, then those are available in the commons out there. Finally, I want to let you know the audio and video from this evening will be available, Lord willing, through the Desiring God website. Also, Pastor Piper will be using an outline, a a PDF up here on the screen. Don't feel that you need to copy down everything there in your notes. We plan to make that PDF available as well through the Desiring God website so you can get that content when it comes available here in a few days or whenever we have the seminar ready to go. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Declare his glory among the nations, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples 
are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Ascribe to the Lord glory and come into his courts with praise. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then will the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the peoples in his righteousness and the world in his faithfulness. So, Lord, you are a gracious, global God. The nations are yours because you made them. And you are not content that they live in rebellion against you. You will have every knee bow. Every tongue will confess that you are Lord. You will own rightly and manifestly Cuba and Argentina and Brazil and Colombia and Panama and Benin and Mexico and Canada and China and Mongolia and India and Bangladesh and Laos and Cambodia and Malaysia and Papua New Guinea and Australia and all the Middle East with its high-handed rebellion against the crucified Son of God, including Saudi Arabia and Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and Jordan and Syria, yes, and Israel. You will have them for yourself, all of North Africa and all the countries to the south of that great continent. They will be yours one day. And my prayer earnestly is that this time together will be used by your sovereign hand to make that happen. You ordain means to the achievement of your global purposes in prayer and in sending and in going. And I pray that prayers would be answered in this room, Lord. Many people are in this room wondering, is it me? Am I one of the goers? Am I one of the martyrs? Am I one of the radical, lay my life down, wartime living senders who change everything for the cause of the globe and the mission. And so, Lord, I pray that nobody remains the same, that you will make world Christians here, people who carry the globe on their heart because Christ is in their heart and the globe is a peanut in his pocket. This is no trouble for the risen Lord Jesus, and he is in us, and we praise you, Father, for him who loved us and gave himself for us and for millions around the world whom he means to gather into one priesthood. So God, come, help us. Don't let us play games here, I pray. Communicate with us. Deal with us deeply. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. That was Psalm 96, and I love the psalm. It's a magnificent statement, and I hope you will meditate on it. Um, I was reading World Magazine this week, 
And two articles were really moving to me. Andre Suze is often moving to me. That's not the one I'm going to refer to, though. But this one by Mindy Bells. Mindy is an international correspondent and travels around the world a lot and was in Afghanistan when she wrote this. And uh, she said something that, two sentences that stirred me. I thought, I'm going to read that right off the bat Friday night. The first thing she said that gripped me was this, in many quarters, it's talking about Afghanistan now, in many quarters, especially among the young people, the disillusionment with Islamic movements of all shades is palpable. That, that really struck me. We kind of think that everybody who flies under the banner of Islam is a rabid extremist. There are millions disillusioned. That's an answer to prayer. I pray for the disillusionment of Islam a lot. I hope you do too. They have no savior. They need to feel disillusion with their system. It is so hopeless. But the, the one that really gripped me was, yet for me and my fellow Christians in the West, too often we put more faith in the headlines of this place, boasting of insurgency, casualty figures, futility of U.S. mission, than we do in the words of Jesus Christ, whose great commission begins with the call, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And that gripped me, because emotionally that's true. It's true for me often. You read a headline about some violence or some hardness, and it, it takes over your emotions. And the words of Jesus, they just kind of small little, that's just absurd. That's insane. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore to Afghanistan and make disciples. That's the word that is 10 million times more powerful, more important than any headline you'll read about insurgency. So I was moved by that that article, and uh, and thankful for Mindy and the whole the whole crowd there <coughs> at World Magazine. This course is built around uh, this book and the content of it. This is the book I wrote in 1993, updated twice since then, and uh, the outlines on that are going to be on the overhead are more or less <coughs> taken over verbatim from here with a few others thrown in and, and a lot of texts along the way. So if you don't have this and you want to have in fullness what I'm saying here, this is, this is the way to have it in fullness. You've, you've got this one, I think, already. These are sermons. And, and I'll try to say how, how this became this over time. And it's really, really interesting. And in fact, that, that is what I want to do is start with autobiography because you might wonder... You should wonder, so why did you write a book on missions? You've never been a missionary, and uh, you don't even like to travel. Only your wife likes to travel. I really don't like to travel. We stand in customs lines in Brazil and Australia, and I look at Noel and say, you enjoy this? <laughs> so um, why am I writing this book? I mean, somebody who's been there, done that for 30 or 40 years, maybe they're in a position to write that book. And so that's, that's the story I want to tell you for maybe 10 or 15 
minutes here before I jump into the, to the substance. Um, I was sitting at the, at the uh, dining room table, I mean the, uh, the kitchen table tonight, eating dinner about an hour ago with Talitha and Noel, and when I was done with my hamburger, I'm just sitting there looking out the window, shaking my head, and Noel said, I didn't realize I was shaking my head, and Noel said, why are you shaking your head? <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> um, and I said, I just can't believe I'm teaching this course. Why am I teaching this course? I, I can't believe I wrote that book. I can't believe why, why did I, how did this happen? I mean, should it have happened? Because if, if anecdotes are right, this book has made a big difference in a lot of people's lives. It's put people on the line. I've had a dad say to me, if my kid dies on the field, I'll kill you. That's what he said. So, um, here's the story. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina in a home that was over-the-top Christian, joyfully, gloriously Christian. My dad was an evangelist, the old-time independent fundamental Baptist evangelist that had revivals. Not the way you should use the word revival, but he held revivals. And he used to joke and say, we don't hold them, we let them go. That's the way he would talk. <laughs> and what he meant was many crusades, like Billy Graham. Billy Graham would do them for 50,000, and my dad would do them for 500. And that was, that was the difference. And, and my dad went all over the country, he was in every state and Canada, and spent, I suppose, 60 years of active pursuit of unbelieving sinners for Christ. And you grow up in a home like that, it makes some impressions. And I wrote down four here that are just huge. Number one, my dad loved the glory of God. He pronounced it glory. And he used it in every prayer that he ever prayed, that I ever heard him pray, whether it was family prayer or a church prayer. He loved the glory of God and he was full of joy in it and full of worship. My dad was a worshiping, singing man. And I don't think many of you had the privilege of growing up in a home where on vacation with you and your sister sitting in the back seat, your parents would be singing songs of praise to Jesus in the front seat. That's rare. Second, lostness. My dad really believed people were lost. He really believed they were hell-bound. My dad was the, I've said, and I'm still going to say it, the happiest man I've ever known, and he had no qualms doing what I've never done, namely begin every sermon with a joke. And, and he was just hilarious at the dinner table. He would come home with his jokes. Most of them were inappropriate because they were ethnic jokes or drunk jokes or... <laughs> I loved them. I mean, you know, that was before the politically correct day and we didn't know what we were doing. Shame on us. But he was just unbelievably happy man. But when he got serious in the pulpit, he scared the willies out of me. The, the, the text that I remember 
perhaps most often that frightened me was Hebrews 9.27. And, and he would squint and get this look in his face that just like, this is really serious. And, and he would say, it is appointed unto man once to die. And he'd squint. And after that, the judgment. And, and everybody's just like, God, the floor might open any minute, you know. This is a Jonathan Edwards type moment. So I, I saw that the happiness, I saw the, the, the healthy humor of a human being over here, and I saw a man just who felt like his ministry was always standing on the brink of hell, just pushing people back. And I'd watch him cry at the end. He'd stand at the end while we're singing softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. And he'd look right at you. He's calling you. He's calling you. So here's this little kid traveling with his dad from time to time, absorbing. People are lost. That's where this book comes from, among other places. Or sacrifices. People get, you know, on a lot of people's cases about the way they do their marriages. I will never, ever, ever get on my dad's case for the way they did their marriage. Gone for two weeks, home for four days. Gone for three weeks, home for four days. Gone for four weeks, home for four days. Gone for a week, home for four days. Two-thirds of my life, he was gone. I never, never once resented a minute of it. To this day, I hold him in the highest Regard And people can make a case if they want that I'm bad the way I am because he didn't do his job. And I will just say, I'm going to heaven not believing that or not caring if it's true. Unless you hate your kids, you cannot be my disciple. Go ahead and tweet that question right now if you want to. Because I don't have any better answer than to say, I admire my dad for pursuing lost people. And my mother never said a word to me or to him in my hearing of resentment. She was an omnicompetent mom doing everything he did when he wasn't there and being glad when he did it when he was there. My whole vision of manhood and womanhood grew up watching the dynamic of my mom's genius, showing the total competency of a single mom two-thirds of the year, and a totally glad-hearted, submissive, yes, I'm glad you're here. Go ahead and lead the devotions. Lead us wherever you want to lead us. I'm just tired of leading this ornery kid of mine. (laughs) Take over, Bill Piper. Sacrifice. It was a huge sacrifice for my dad to live out of a suitcase for, what, 40 years? Huge sacrifice. And he... As an old man, we'd, we'd, I'd get out his poems. I'd say, Daddy, read, read me a couple of your poems. He wrote poems for me when I was six. I wanted to hear him read it. He'd cry every time he read these poems. Home is where I hang my hat. He wrote a poem called Home is Where I Hang My Hat. Sacrifice. And, and the fourth thing, so glory of God, lostness, sacrifice, faith in the sovereign goodness of God. We would sit down and we would mail out letters. I'd lick envelopes or I would stuff envelopes and fold letters and we'd send these out to 100 churches in California and Oregon and Washington to see if they wanted him to come. That's the way he made his living, love offerings 
And if, if he crossed the country in the 50s, you don't come back the next night. He puddle jumping across the country and, and you stay there for three or four or five weeks. And so you try to get churches to want you all back to back. That's not easy. And so we'd bow our heads and we'd pray, God, over these hundred letters, grant that there would be six invitations back to back in a geographic area. And he believed him. My dad just never communicated to me this wasn't going to happen. I mean, we prayed, and he got up and went about his business. Like, this is going to happen. God rules. He loves lost people. He's going to use me to find them, and he'll make a way. And so I, I, to this day, just stand in awe of my father's faith in the way he led his his life. So those are some of the roots. I went off to Wheaton College. There was a missions week every year at Wheaton, whatever they called it, festival, or I can't remember. And, you know, in those days, people were marching for Vietnam and they were marching for civil rights, but there was always this band of crazies who every fall called everybody to care about the nations, which nobody did. Nobody did in my generation. They just, I mean, that's an overstatement, but you know what I mean. They're, they're barefoot on the streets with black armbands and and uh, making it happen for civil rights and, and, and Vietnam. But, but always there was this radical group saying, hey, there's a world. <laughs> there's a world bigger than Vietnam, bigger than civil rights. And I always watched that. And then, of course, lots of us didn't give a rip about anything. You know, we were just into girls or literature or, you know, just totally into ourselves and didn't care much about civil rights or Vietnam or the world or anything. But seeds were being sown. And uh, Jim Elliott, you know, is an alumnus of Wheaton, and therefore he was featured. He was one of the missionaries who died in 1956 in Ecuador, and along with four others. And uh, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. <laughs> That's a powerful sentence. Have you ever heard of it? We used to put it on t-shirts and shirts around here, Tom, in the early 80s when we were coming alive to this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, like his life, to gain what he cannot lose, like Jesus. So Wheaton was not insignificant, though not major in the shaping of my missions vision. Fuller Seminary um, is where all the theology came together that's underneath everything. I fell in love with the sovereignty of God. I, you, you, you may not believe this or know this, but I'm, I, go to, I go to Fuller as a, a pretty fighting free willer, Arminian type. And uh, I get in this course with James Morgan, and uh, he, he's... He's pulling Romans 9 on me, which is not fair, you know, just because I, I wrote at the end of that course in a blue book. I wish I'd saved it because it was epic making. Uh, Romans 9 is like a tiger going around de devouring free willers like me. That's what I wrote in my final exam. On the way there, I remember... Some of you have seen me do this. Do it again. I remember standing outside his classroom after one day, he's arguing about the sovereignty of God. He's defending the sovereignty of God in all things, and God controls the world and rules everything. And I'm 
I go up to him. He's a pretty big guy. He died of cancer while I was there, stomach cancer. We used to play handball together, and it was sad to lose him, wife and four kids. But he was big at the first. And, and I, I, he, he was talking about sovereignty. God. I said, Morgan. I might have said Dr. Morgan. I can't remember. But the attitude was, Morgan. I said, see this? I held up a pen. Watch this. I dropped it. That was my, I just settled the Armenian issue right there. <laughs> but, but by the end, by the end, I, I was writing about Romans 9. Um, it did devour a, a man-centered free willer and turned me upside down. And then Jonathan Edwards' book, The End for Which God Created the World, has, after the Bible remained, one of the top three influences in my life, I suppose, along with freedom of the will, along with a few others. But, but the end for which God created the world, which is what you're going to hear a lot of tonight and tomorrow morning, it, it was just God created the world for the glory of his name. God created the world to display his majesty. The universe is about God. You, you know, when you, when you look at the Hubble telescope pictures and you read a little bit of astronomy and physics, and you realize this universe is getting bigger all the time as we discover its bigness, and, and this drives s s humanistic scientists up the wall because they know how small man is. Here's this infinitesimal, I mean, it is smaller than, a, than an electron, this planet called Earth, where we live, and then nothing out there. What does that mean? And they go, well, they've got to be out there. This, if it's this big, they have to be out there. Because it, what's the assumption behind that? But it's about us. It's about humanity. It's about evolving into something smart. And I said, well, wait a minute. It's, that may not be the point of all this bigness. <laughs> like the heavens are telling the glory of God. And so it's very fitting that we be infinitesimal and the voice of the glory be infinite. Wouldn't that be appropriate? I mean, that makes sense. The other just doesn't make any sense. So the glory of God is what it's all about, both in history and in, in the galaxies. Went to Munich after Fuller, learned a foreign language, lived in another culture, felt like a one year old again, you know, you're working on a doctorate and you can't talk. <laughs> yeah. Entschuldigensy, bitte. You know, you don't even know what I'm saying, do you? <laughs> Wo ist die bathroom? <laughs> you feel stupid and, and you feel there's a whole world out there that I don't know anything about and I'm just so foreign here. It's just it's a great experience. Everybody should have it. I became much less American there and much more Christian. It's one of the effects of being outside your identifying culture is you realize, okay, who am I? Must I have America to be me? Or do I need Jesus to be me? Anywhere. It's good to live for a season away from your seemingly identifying networks 
of people and of culture that define you because if they define you more than Jesus defines you, that's not good. So Munich was big in that regard. Bethel, so I'm now 28 years old and I came to Bethel. That's how I'm, I live in the Twin Cities because I got my first job at Bethel. It's the only reason I came. Didn't know where Bethel, didn't, never heard of Bethel when they offered me this job and uh, stayed there for six years. I see some of my former students. I passed one of my students on the, on the walk, walking over here today at 2.30 and asked her about her grandchild. <laughs> my students have grandchildren. That's not possible. I remember her, Edith. <laughs> she was an A student in Luke. Just like yesterday, I remember Edith. Now she's got grandchildren. Good night. How can that be? So anyway, Beth- Bethel was a season of just intense Bible teaching where everything was just settling in. And I was just consumed with pre- preparations and teaching and trying to understand books of the Bible and teach them. And, and uh, then, then came 1980 and Bethlehem. And ever since then, I've been here and the, the 1983 was the big the big change so up till up till then no no big missions commitment no big missions anything you know just there having everything you know put in place like kindling before the fire falls and it fell in 1983 fell with tom here on the front Row and, and for me, the, the church had a missions conference when I came, and I never preached at it. Two people did for 1980, 81, So in 83, the missions committee said, would you preach one of the two weeks, which you've been doing ever since, one of the two weeks? And I said, sure, if you want me to. I'd never preached on missions for three years. And uh, I was in the middle of the series, Desiring God, which became the book, and so I decided to name the sermon Missions, the Battle Cry of Christian Hedonism, fall of 1983. And preparing for that sermon was life-changing. Because what clicked, a lot of things clicked, the glory of God connected with the globe, which is duh. I mean, this is, this is how um, fragmented your brain and your soul can be. Some of you are in this place right now, and tonight will be... Tonight, for some of you, will be this. Right now, the, you got these two things in your head, okay? God created the world and owns the world, and God is infinitely glorious and sovereign, and they've never come together. No implications flowing at all from those two things in your head. They're just like, you know, lobes of your brain that never, that never meet. And, and in that preparation, they just came together and said, well, yes, Jonathan Edwards, if, if God is doing all for his glory then he's passionate about the worship of his name among the nations, which means we should get it for him if that's what the Bible says to do, and it does. And so ever since then, and I could tell you a lot of stories between then and and now, but uh, the glory of God came together with the world peoples, with an S on the end, came together with Ralph Winter. I won't talk about it because I'm going to talk about it later. Uh, prayer connected, the, the power of the word to convert the world 
namely prayer, domestic ministries and frontier ministries. Oh, how we wrestled in those days with the relationship between the neighborhoods and the nations and how, how they fit together. And we worked it out. We put it in writing for how these things work in our minds for how they're not at odd. You don't have second-class citizens in the church. Those who are on the street in Phillips neighborhood and those who are on the street in Afghanistan, they're not second-class citizens here. They, th- there's an interrelationship between those two. Here's a simple way to say it. If you are passionately committed to local, let's call them domestic ministries, name it, you know, abortion, poor, AIDS ministries, uh, local anything where you're going to relieve some suffering and point people to Jesus, you should really care about exporting that where they don't have churches to do it. See? And the the only place people can go with ministries is where they've seen them and do them. So if, if you've got it in your head that there's a tension here, you just need to get over that. There are reasons why goers should care deeply that there are stayers who minister and lay their lives down in local evangelism, and there are reasons why those who stay and lay their lives down in local evangelism should be thrilled that there are goers exporting that sort of thing to places where there's no Jesus to even get something like that started because nobody believes. There's no, there's no tension here. This is a, a symbiotic reality when you plant a church, you're planting it from something. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of churches that are doing the right things. You, I saw somebody blog the other day. It was so wise. They just said, don't expect any radical transformations on the airplane. What you've done here, you're going to do there. What you're good at here, you'll be good at there. What you're bad here, you'll be bad there. No, no, nothing on the airplane. No air. No, no pills. You don't become a different person when you land. That's just huge. It's, you know, it's, we're raising our kids to be either, you know, sleepers or, or uh, engaged. And out of all that, 1983 to 93, those 10 years, sermons, conference talks, meditations, star articles, whatever, uh, the first edition of this happens. And if, and if you ask me... Um, so, how can you be audacious enough to do that? It really is. I mean, I, I brought this one along, this newest one called Bloodlines, because th- this, this is even more true. Like, what are you writing this for? What do you know? Look at your church. I mean, you, Mr. Diversity and, and Mr. Harmony, you're going to write a book like this? With a mainly white church, what are you doing? And, and that's pretty much the way I feel about this. Like, you're not a missionary. You haven't suffered worth a toot. It's like, look at this. What are you? And, and there's a real simple answer to that. I just read my Bible and say what I see and feel really strongly about it. And I, I'm, I don't... I don't I don't commend any sermon or any article or any book as true and helpful because of me. Anything about me. Nothing. 
Loud. I'm loud, right? So who cares about loud? I live this way. I'm married this way. I've got these kids. I can't. Who cares? I want to know, is it true? Is it in the book? Is it God's Word? That's all I care about. So I, I just say to God, okay, look, I'm going to do my best. I do my best with Rachel Harmony. I'll do my best with missions, involvement, and mobilization. But in the, in the end, I'm a C-minus human being, maybe D. And if this is of any help, it's not because of my grade. It isn't. It's because it's got Bible in it with some arguments that that's what it means, which is what this seminar is. So that, you need to, you know, you need to ask what, why people write books the way they do, and do they have any right to write them? And, and my answer is, I don't even write to do anything. I just do it because I feel like doing it. When I read my Bible, I can't not write about it. And so if, if people get help, I can't help that. You know, if people read it and get stirred up to go, I say, don't let your dad kill me. <laughs> so I don't know if that um, is helpful for you or not, but that's where the book came from, and that's the way I feel about most of the books that I write. Let me see if my notes here are exhausted on my autobiography here. Um, Okay, let's go ahead and open up this machine here and see if it works. Do I need to unplug it and plug it in? Voila. We just needed time. I think God made everybody with his own gifts. So here's where we start. Bethlehem Baptist Church, John Piper. You know, if you've been at a church long enough, you can, you can persuade people to make the church mission statement the one you have for your own life. Or you can take for your own life the one the church has grown to be because you've been there long enough. So I, I have the church embraced this one. It's on the wall up there. And, uh, and it, I would say it's my life mission statement. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. Peoples. That S is not an accident. It's not people. It's peoples. And that peace in our mission statement makes us a missionary people. One of my goals for this uh, um, seminar is to seed, to, to sow seed into, I, I don't know who you are, why you're here, but to sow seed into the, the wonderful awakening uh, that has been called the New Calvinism or the Young, Restless, and Reformed or Reformed Resurgence or whatever because, and I just read this again in an email today from, from a friend, uh, 
it's wonderfully energetic for church planting, by and large. You know, the Acts 29 phenomenon and, and lots of other evidences of God's great blessing, great power, great energy. And, and you don't, by and large, when you go around, taste a passion for unreached peoples in this movement. And a lot of people are aware of this. We had Ed Stetzer talk about it at the conference a few weeks ago. And, and I, I carry that torch. I'm just, that's one of my little torches. I'm going to walk into every situation I can and say to all of you who may have grown up in churches or homes where that was a zero phenomenon. It just was not on anybody's agenda. And I'm, I'm just trying to light your fire with this and pray that the Lord would never let it go out. So our mission statement has peoples, and we'll talk about what the difference is between people and peoples in a minute. Um, so here's the thesis of the seminar. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. This is, this is the first paragraph in the book. It's the only paragraph people remember after they read the book. <laughs> Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. You know, it really makes a difference in your life when you decide what things are going to stop being in the age to come and what things keep on going in the age to come. And missions does not keep on going. Evangelism does not keep on going. Worship keeps on going. Obedience keeps on going. Lots of things keep on going, but not missions. It is a temporary necessity because what is most important isn't there. So don't, don't ever say missions is the most important thing in the world. It isn't. It's a, how can a means be more important than the end? And that was so important. I, I just didn't get that when I was in college. And I'm glad the Lord has made that, that plain to me now. So the first thing I want to do is talk about, just get us oriented in the, the new shape of world Christianity. That's, that's a phrase from Mark Knowles' book. In fact, I think that's the title of his book, which I recommend very highly. So let's just get ourselves oriented. What's God been doing for the last hundred years in the world? And uh, lots of you know these facts, but some of you, this may be newer, and it's good, it's good to review in any case. Laman, Laman Sana, or however you pronounce it, um, is professor of history at, uh, of world Christianity at Yale, and he uses the word breathtaking to describe the situation we're in right now. This book is, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years old. Disciple, Disciples of All Nations. Um, among the many breathtaking developments in the post-World War II and the subsequent colonial eras, few are more striking than the worldwide resurgence of Christianity or worldwide Christian resurgence. With unflagging momentum, Christianity has become or is fast becoming the principal religion of the peoples of the world. Primal societies that once stood well outside the main orbit of the faith have become major centers of Christian impact. While Europe and North America once considered the religion's heartland, 
are in noticeable recession. We seem to be in the middle of massive cultural shifts and realignments whose implications are only now beginning to become clear. Now, I wonder if he's right about that right there. Um, he's certainly right about this in the last hundred years, and we'll see some statistics on that. But there's a lot of debate right now about whether Christianity, meaning broad church attendance and that sort of thing, is, is up, down, or straight. And uh, the, most, the most statistics I looked at are that America's been pretty, pretty steady for about 50 years at who goes to church. There are places that are way more secular than they used to be, you know, the Northeast, the Northwest, and, but, but there are, there are, when you take America as a whole, I don't know if this is true. It may be, and maybe you can point me to some things that uh, would show me. So there's his breathtaking um, situation. The term uh, that you, you should be familiar with is that one right there, the global south. The new terminology that has been introduced into our vocabulary, Philip Jenkins is the main person who who did put that in our vocabulary, is the term global south, a reference to the astonishing growth of the Christian church in, in Africa and Latin America and Asia, while the formerly dominant centers of Christian influence in Europe are weakening. See, I, in, in my paraphrase, I left out America because I'm just not sure. I don't know. We may be getting weaker. Things may be going backward in America, but I don't know if that's the case or not. So know this term, the global south. It's, gonna, it's not going to go away for a long time. And, and here, here, are the, here are the reasons why. Realignments of Christianity toward the global south. Here's what we mean in the big shift. At the beginning of the 20th century, Europeans were um, 70.6% of the world's population. By the end of the 20th century, the European percentage of Christianity had shrunk to 28%. So notice that decline. That's what they mean by a dramatic backward movement. Latin America and Africa combined provided 43% of the world's Christians. So that movement from 76% to 28% is the emergence of the global south and the decline of the centers of the faith for the last, what, thousand years. In 1900, for example, Africa had uh, 10 million Christians, and understand definitions mean professing Christians, no, no attempt to read people's hearts here, just their professions. 10 million Christians representing about 10% of the population. Um, By 2000, so now 100 years later, this figure had grown to 360 million from 10, representing about half, so 10% to to 50% of the population. Quantitatively, this may well be the largest shift of religious affiliation that had ever occurred anywhere. That's a quote from Philip Jenkins. So that's a, a sketch of some of the of the global, the global South. In the past 10 years, this is from the Joshua Project, and uh, if you're not familiar with joshuaproject.net online, um, get familiar with it because there isn't a better place for keeping yourself informed about the movement of God among the unreached peoples. 
in the past 10 years for every one new believer in North America and Europe, there have been nearly 30 new believers in the developing countries of Nigeria, Brazil, India, and China. So, thinking of America again, the point, I'm not making the point that America is growing like the church is growing in the third world or in the global south. I'm just saying that it may be that we're steady rather than that kind of amazing increase. That was a, that was a new statistic to me in preparing for this class that stunned me, made me very excited about what God's doing elsewhere. Mark Knowles' description of the new shape of world Christianity is probably the most provocative. Some of these are funny, in fact, and uh, it, it, it's very amazing. The Christian church has experienced a larger geographical redistribution in the last 50 years. Th this book is, what, two years old, maybe. In the last 50 years, than any comparable uh, period in history, with the possible exception of the earliest years in church history. So here's, here's about eight or nine of these facts that are remarkable. Active Christian adherence has become stronger in Africa than in Europe. The number of practicing Christians in China may be approaching the number in the United States. Live bodies in church are far more numerous in Kenya than in Canada. More believers worship together in church Sunday by Sunday in Nagaland than in Norway. More Christian workers from Brazil are active in cross-cultural ministry outside their homelands than from Britain or from Canada. I was just in Brazil and I gave them this quote and, and I pled with, with the people I was with, is don't, don't have a mindset of being a receiving country anymore. Just let that go. Dream a dream. Brazil is the 14th largest sending country in the world when it comes to missionaries. Dream that up to 10, 8, 7. Become a major force for missions in the world, not just a receiving group that they have been for a long time. And that's true of numerous lands. Last Sunday, more Christian believers attended church in China than in the so-called Christian Europe. This past Sunday, more Anglicans... Uh, now, this one's a little bit hard to, to catch, so read it carefully. The past Sunday, this past Sunday, more Anglicans attended church in each, that's a key, key, key phrase there, each of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, Uganda, than did Anglicans in Britain, Canada, and Episcopalians in the university, I mean, in the United States combined. So, more, more Episcopalians worshiping in Kenya than in the U.S. and Canada combined, in South Africa than in us combined, and so on. Those are amazing numbers. It has, it has blown away the liberal establishment of Anglicanism in Britain. They don't know quite what to make of it because if you have a big world assembly, then there are more bishops from the African lands than there are from the north countries that where it all started, and they're all Bible believers. 
It's absolutely maddening to liberals when black people are Bible believers because, you know, you got to defer to blacks because that's politically correct and they all get it right and you don't because you're liberal. And I love them being in that pinch. Love it. That's the way it ought to be. Last Sunday, more Presbyterians were in church in Ghana than in Scotland. That must make John Knox roll over in his grave. This past week in Great Britain, in uh, at least 15,000 Christian foreign missionaries were hard at work evangelizing the locals, namely the Brit natives. Most of these missionaries are from Africa and Asia. You go to London today, what, what are the biggest churches? They're African churches. They're just massive, you know, eight, 10,000 people mostly Nigerians, Kenyans, worshiping God. And uh, it's, London doesn't know what to make of it all. It's just remarkable, wonderful. Okay, caution. Michael Horton's caution. Celebration of the much-advertised, this is a quote from him, of the much-advertised expansion of Christianity in two-thirds world, most notably in recent years in Philip Jenkins, the next Christendom, should at least be tempered by the fact that the prosperity gospel is the most explosive version of this phenomenon. And I totally accept that caution. Um, It doesn't undo my gratitude to God for what's happening outside the States and outside of Europe, in Asia, South America, and Africa, but it does temper it with the fact that We've got our work to do. The church has its work to do. The gospel is spreading in forms that are defective in many places. So what's called for? What, boycott? (laughs) we, we We don't relate to them or whatever. No, teaching. Teaching. Truth is what's called for. The maturing of the church. I am. I think you should not be intimidated too much by those who accuse you maybe of cultural imperialism if you think that you might have something to teach somewhere in the world besides America. What, what you need to, to, to think is, and I don't know if, if, if we've gotten this right for 150 years, is that the, the way you want to teach, if you go someplace to, to, to deepen and strengthen biblical, is you want to do it in such a way as to equip others so that you're not relied upon indefinitely. There's, there's, there are hermeneutical, methodological, pedagogical ways of doing it that haven't been done. Like lecturing isn't going to cut that. If you lecture only, you will be depended on forever. But if you sit down with the person and make them get meaning from text under your guidance for a year or two, then they should be able to do it. And they have somebody else do it. And then they're not dependent anymore on somebody else. Tell me what this means. There are ways to do it. We, that's why this college and seminary here exists. We believe massively in this thing called arcing. 
which is just a fancy way of learning how to take a paragraph, break it down into propositions, find out how they're related, what's the point, and you can argue for that against anybody in the universe and make a case with authority. That's what this paragraph means. And that's what's needed all over the world. Authoritative preaching from the Word that people can see. You got it from there. You're just saying it, you know. The Westerners say it, then they say it, and they say, well, who cares about who's saying it, you know? Is it there? And that, that takes work, and there are cultural conditions all over the world that militate against work, militate against solitude, militate against thinking, and we, we've got our work cut out for us big time. So this caution is sober, wise, but not, um, not the end of the matter. I'm thankful that God has done what He's done. So that's the end of my my little jaunt into the global south and the, the present situation. By the way, uh, I can't remember whether David said it when he was introducing us, but uh, he, did, he did mention we'll do questions at the end for like a half an hour, 45 minutes with, with whatever you've uh, tweeted in or texted in. Or is it just tweeting? I can't remember. Um, but periodically, I'll, it's risky in a, in a crowd this big to, to open it up for questions, um, partly because I can't hear so well. Um, but I may do that from time to time, like right now. Like, does, does what I just said, like just, somebody's just busting with a question. Okay, we'll take one. That's, it's a noun. Global South is a noun. The global South. It's just a, it's a phrase that's in the literature now, and it refers to South America, Africa, Asia, where the center of, of uh, Christian strength and growth is happening, moving out from the former centers of Europe and America. That's, that's the gist of it. What, maybe one more. Any, any other bursting? Yeah, Lewis. Yeah. What's being done to engage the teachers of the prosperity gospel? Well, I've not engaged personally with any of them, but I put in the newest edition, which just came out, what, this year, last year, whenever it was, uh, 2010, I put a section in here on a plea to prosperity preachers. So my effort is to throw it out into the literary world and hope that somebody reads it. Uh, A second answer is when I went to Australia... And when I went to Brazil last week, um, especially in Brazil, this, this was just about the number one issue people wanted me to address. So I'm being interviewed for half an hour by cameras and bloggers in Brazil, all of whom have to relate to these preachers or wherever, or what, what we've exported, I suppose. And so I'm there, you know, giving my reasons why, but uh, that's it for me. I, I don't know what else is being being done. I, I want to, uh, I've got a section on the prosperity gospel at the end, which is going to be optional. Like, I don't think I'm going to get there, but I stuck it on there just in case. But it, what I have to say is, is right here in the, in the, one of the first two chapters. So let me, let me continue on. Um, the mission, in spite of all that, is not complete. All the nations have not been reached. Unreached people and unreached 
peoples. I want to talk about this now. I'm going to make a biblical case for a certain viewpoint about what the Great Commission means. That is, what's our goal? What are we, what's the task set before us? The new shape of world Christianity and the amazing growth and spread of Christianity into the countries of the world does not mean that the mission the Lord gave us is complete. Now, why, why is that? It's not because there are individuals still unconverted. They're going to be individuals unconverted when Jesus splits the clouds and arrives, and it's over. And we know that from Second Thessalonians and from Revelation, because they're going to cry out for the rocks to fall on them, and uh, they're going to be consigned to fire, according to First Thessalonians 1. So, that there are people yet unsaved is not why I say the Great Commission isn't yet complete because it'll never be complete, if that's your definition. But because there are still nations, that is, peoples, who have not been reached with the gospel, nations in the sense of, of uh, Cherokee nation, Sioux nation. I just choose those because we have a history in America of using the word nation that way. Most of the time we don't use the word… Most of the time when we say nation, we mean Germany. England, Brazil, China. That's not what the Bible means by nation. The Bible means Cherokee nation, Sioux nation, Ojibwe nation, Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Edomites, Moabites. The command of Jesus was not that all the countries be discipled, like we get 209 plus countries, and the gospel is in all of them. So we're done. No, it's not even in Jesus' mind when he said, go make disciples of all the nations, that there would be 209 of these. That's not what he meant by nations. And so this is huge. This, I didn't know this until I went to seminary and Ralph Winter taught a class. You know, I just, I just grew up, nobody, nobody explained to me this. Like, oh, I thought, we always talked about fields, you know, home and foreign fields. Fields. That's a geographic term. Field, you know, Philippines is a field. Argentina is a field. I just thought in terms of geographic, go to places. And that's just so not what the Bible means when it talks about the Great Commission. So, what's the biblical evidence for this? That's what we're going to take a few minutes on now. The biblical evidence for understanding this phrase in… in, uh, in um, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Pantata ethne, all the nations, as peoples or ethno-linguistic nations, certain ethnic dimension to it, and and language dimension to it. I want the the biblical evidence for that now. So here's the basic text. Jesus came to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So, there's the phrase, all nations. What does that mean? That's the Greek, and it's people bandy it around, panta, ta, ethne. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's really part of it. 
which is what's needed all over the world today. If you, you know, if you, if you take Operation World, so I've got my little prayer bench, and Operation World sits there on the floor beside it. And it's so big, I can't put it up on top. Any day you open and read about almost any nation, right at the top of the need is leadership training, leadership training, leadership training, teaching. Because the, the gospel spreads way faster than the substance that's needed to sustain the church. The church just goes haywire without right doctrine. And yet the gospel runs ahead. And, and if you think that's a new phenomenon, you, you do know, don't you, that every single letter written in the New Testament was written because there was stupidity going on in the church. Error was in the church. Doctrinal error, behavioral error. We wouldn't have a New Testament unless the, the gospel spread faster than right doctrine. That's, that's okay. It's going to be that way. Evangelists are that way. You know, I could name some, but I get in trouble, who are sloppy in their doctrine, and they save people like crazy. I'm just glad they do, and I'm cleaning up behind them, <laughs> which I'm happy to do. And because, because if the world depended on me, to get itself saved, it would be weak. I mean, I just, I'm a lousy evangelist. I'm thankful for every little email or letter or, or testimony or person in this church that tells, got saved under your ministry. That's not the main testimony I get. So anyway, you need to go there. Just, we all have, we're in this together. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill anybody for being sloppy in their theology who saved more sinners than I do, but I am going to come in behind them and try to make it last and keep it on track. Okay, there. I want to know now, all nations, right there, what does that mean? What does that mean? Because then I'll know what, what our task is. Is it done? When will it be done? And, and this is a biblical argument for what it means. Who are the Pontita ethne, the singular of ethne? Here's some, I'm starting arguments. I'm going to give you, I don't know, half a dozen arguments. And I didn't number them, but you'll, you'll see them come. The singular of, of this word, ethne, nation, never refers to an individual Gentile in the New Testament. <clears throat> you never find a ethnos, a Gentile, in, in individual in the New Testament, but always to an ethnic group. So when you look at the singular, it's always an, whoops, <laughs> it's always an, uh, an ethnic group. There. Pantata ethne occurs over 100 times in the Greek Old Testament. So that phrase is very common in the Greek Old Testament and never denotes individuals, but rather always denotes ethnic groups outside Israel. The Old Testament... The Old Testament precursor of the Great Commission refers to pantata ethne in reference to the families of the earth. Now, this is important. Get this. Uh, I'm calling this right here, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the Old Testament precursor of the Great Commission. Okay? Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And in this, when it gets to all the families here, it's not pantata ethne. It's families of the earth. But... The Old Testament precursor of the commission refers to Pontus Ethne in reference to the families of the earth that will be blessed through Abraham. Families, tribes is used in Genesis 12, 3, but Ethne in the repetitions of this promise. So everywhere else this promise occurs in Genesis, 
instead of having this Hebrew phrase right here, I mean, this, um, the, the, ter- the term Greek right there, phulai, it's got, it's got this one right here. So that's, that's really relevant, and I'll, I'll show you those other texts. But here's what this text says. The Lord said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who, curse, who dishonors you, uh, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, so let's get this real clear, in you, all the families, Thulai in Greek, of the earth would be blessed. Now, that's what I'm saying is, is the precursor of the Great Commission, because of the way Paul uses it over in Galatians 3. Through the Jews, through the Jews, all the families, families here, Thulai, tribes of the earth are going to be blessed. That's the goal. Touch every family or tribe. Now, look at what happens when you uh, get this repeated these three times in Genesis. Genesis 18, 18. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations, pantata ethne, of the earth shall be blessed. This is the same promise, different words. Genesis 22, 18. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations, pantata ethne, of the earth shall be blessed in him. Genesis 26, 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So three times Genesis 12, 3 is repeated, and it's never repeated with phuli, tribes. It's always repeated with ethne, with that panta on the front. So I'm going to argue that this phrase, which occurs a hundred times in the Old Testament, became a pretty stock phrase for peoples outside Israel that God means to reach with the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to do it, of course, through the seed. Who's the seed? Jesus is the seed. And anybody who's in Jesus is a Jew, which is the only way anybody gets saved. Becoming Jews, that is, seed of Abraham, because to them only, the heir of the world, the promise to inherit the world. So, the reason we Christians, we Gentiles, are saved is because we're grafted into the olive tree, Romans 11. And the rich root of the olive tree, which is the Abrahamic covenant, is pouring saving grace through Jesus Christ into our lives. So, we are the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant promise to reach the nations. And my point right here is simply that the term in the Old Testament for getting to those nations is pantata ethne. Now, the Old Testament abounds with hope. My, my, my. The reason I memorized Psalm 96 is to keep my heart stoked with hope about the nations and the globe. I mean, there are Psalms. I'm going to give you a whole dose of them here. We'll start with... uh, with exhortations. We got some exhortations and we got some prayers. Um, So here are exhortations that God's glory be declared and praised among the nations. In other words, that the Abrahamic covenant really be fulfilled, that that precursor of the Great Commission really will happen someday. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Now, notice the parallel there. That occurs also in Romans 15. 
Paul uses it that way. Nations and peoples with an S on the wall up there is important. This is not countries. This is peoples. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with songs of joy. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of praise be heard. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. So there's a sampling of of exhortations to the nations. This is evangelism. This is world evangelism saying to the nations, come on, praise Yahweh. There's no other way than to know the God of the covenant. Then there's uh, promises. Promises that the nations will one day worship the true God. I will give you the nations for your inheritance. The son is told in Psalm 2. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Yes, they will. These are, these are wills and shells. I remember one of my favorite sermons, Charles Spurgeon, is where he said, I love the wills and shells of God. Because there are just so many do's and don'ts in our lives, and our hearts are always talents to do stuff, and we need loud, clear God in our face saying, I will, yes, I will, I'll get this done. That's what these are. The nations will fear, yes, they will fear. The nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth, your glory. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as an ensign to the peoples, Jesus, and shall the nation shall the nations seek, and his dwellings shall be glorious. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation. I've got no beef with geographic ideas, okay? There's a big article written recently by a fellow who who was just tired of hearing about peoples without anything else, and the whole article is to argue there are geographic terms in the Bible for spreading the gospel. Like, God cares about places. And I said, okay, okay. I don't want to overstate it, you know. The nations shall come to your light and the kings of the, uh, to the brightness of your rising. So those are the promises of the Old Testament. Now, here are the third, the third group, um, prayers. That God be praised among the nations. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the, this is a prayer to God. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. This is the prayer like, hallowed be thy name. You understand what you're saying when you say, sanctified be your name? You're saying, God, use me and all the church to bring the peoples of the earth to a point where they reverence you as holy. That's what you're praying. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. May his name endure forever his fame continue as long as the sun. May men bless themselves by him. All nations call him blessed. 
Now, continuing the argument. So, that, what, what I've done there is try to take uh, the, the phrase pantata ethne, which occurs a hundred times in the Old Testament, focus on Genesis 12, 3, which is the most important text about the, the, the trajectory of what God's going to do with the world. He's going to bring the blessing of Abraham to the, the fuli, the, the, the tribes or families, and then every place that is repeated, it's pantata ethne, and then just showing the enthusiasm for the Psalms of the Psalms for the nations of of the world. Now, coming to the New Testament on Pantata Ethne. In Luke uh, 24 here, Jesus shows that His use of Pantata Ethne comes from the Old Testament context. So, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make the connection now that the way the Old Testament was using it is coming over in the mouth of Jesus. I'm going to get to Matthew 28, 19, but here it's, it's Luke. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Okay, and said to them, thus it is written. Okay, now he, he finds something written where we've been, been talking, and here's what he finds. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. That's there in the Old Testament. On the third day rise again. That's there in the Old Testament. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the, to the Pontic ethne. That's in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, it is. Really. Which means that when he uses that phrase, he's thinking the way the Old Testament does, namely families, peoples, not individual Gentiles. Getting the Great Commission done does not mean primarily winning every individual to Christ, but reaching every one of these, panta ta ethne, it's panta, all of them. We've got to get to all of them. We may not get to every individual, but we must get to all the ethne as Genesis 12 understood it. So that's Luke 24. How could Paul say, this is another argument now, how could Paul say that he had fulfilled the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum? I think I have a map here. Hang on. Okay. Does that show? Okay. Uh, here's Jerusalem. Right there. Right there. And here's Illyricum, right up here. So, all of this, right through Turkey, all of Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia, all this. Now, Paul says this, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the gospel, literally, I've fulfilled the gospel. It says, translated here, ministry of the gospel. I've fulfilled the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on another, on someone else's foundation. So where's he going? Come on, you know. Where's he heading? He's going to Spain. Paul's heading for Spain when he writes Romans, and he wants them to send him on his way. Now, what in the world did he mean that he's fulfilled the gospel? Like, what's Timothy supposed to do? <laughs> Timothy was put as the pastor of Ephesus, and Paul left him there. He says, you, you do Ephesus for the rest of your life. You're not going with me to Spain. You stay. He became the pastor of Ephesus. Well, there's no work. The gospel's fulfilled. Well, you obviously know that's not the case because... All those letters in, in 
infer that there are lost people to be won in those areas. But Paul's done. And that, that was huge for me. I preached that, that the name of this book comes from a sermon that I preached on that. Paul's holy ambition is to preach the gospel where it's never been named. And my main argument with regard to missions in churches is God forbid if everybody does, does what Paul does. God forbid if everybody has Paul's holy ambition. My neighbor would, would be destitute if that were the case. And yours would be, would be too. And everybody would just up and leave, you know. They go to a region where there's no access to the gospel. Even though there are people groups here who have no Christians, like really close, all right? And we've got our work cut out for us here in terms of cross-cultural missions right within 200 yards. Um, but, goodness, they're next door to a Christian church. That's pretty good. Whereas, you know, in Yemen, that's not the case. What, what, what was Paul? And my answer is he was a missionary. Called global partner, we call them now. Everybody's not a missionary. I'll never use that phrase. I know almost all pastors in America do. I'll never do it. I'll never say all of you are missionaries. Because I think when everybody's a missionary, missionaries just start, start, stop appearing. You're not. And what, all I mean by that is, and we're quibbling over words, I know, so just understand me, and then you can use words whatever you, whatever way you want. We are not missionaries. I'm going to use the word missionary or frontier missionary for what Paul was doing. I've preached the gospel through all the urban centers of Jerusalem and Syria and Asia and Macedonia and Achaia, and I'm finished because I've planted the church in every one of those, and I've got to find another place to do this. That's a missionary. Or if you don't, you don't want to shout and you know, be too dogmatic, you can do what I really have done. I've distinguished between Paul-type missionaries and Timothy-type missionaries. The Paul-type missionary is pushing, pushing, pushing outward to the unreached peoples of the world. For him, it was Spain. No, nothing going on in Spain. I'm going. Timothy grew up where? Anybody know where he grew up? It wasn't Ephesus. He grew up in Lystra. Paul found him in Lystra. And he liked him. And he took him. He asked his mom and grandmom, can I have him? I'm taking him away. And he took him on his band of, you know, followers. And then he left him, planted him in Ephesus. That's Timothy-type missions. That would be like you becoming a pastor in Manila. And, and okay, you want to call yourself a missionary? Fine. But, but come up with a word. You know, I use the term um, Timothy-type missionary and Paul-type missionary. Or you say frontier missionary. Frontier meaning I'm pushing out to the frontiers of where the church hasn't been planted yet. And what I say about local churches like Bethlehem, I always want there to be a significant band of people who are like that. I don't want everybody not going to be like that, like leaning towards the unreached all the time. Everybody shouldn't be like that, and we should respect each other. Others are leaning right into Ephesus, right into Ephesus. Good. Can't you see, Piper? There's 
400,000 people don't go to church in these twin cities? Well, yeah. I'm not telling everybody to leave that alone. That's why we're here. But this is really significant that Paul would, would say uh, he has fulfilled, fulfilled the ministry of the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And the reason he can say it is because there are peoples who don't have any church planted in their vicinity or in their group. The aim of the atonement, we're almost done with this point, with this section. The aim of the atonement is for all peoples. This is just another argument that the meaning of the Great Commission is not just to maximize the salvation of all the people in Ephesus, but rather to get to all the peoples in Spain and, and beyond. Here's Revelation 5.9. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. So we're dealing with, with the death of Jesus here. Slain, and by your blood, this is what was achieved by the atonement, the shedding of his blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So what did he achieve by his blood? Answer, he he achieved ransomed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And our job is to get to those groups and preach the gospel, and he will summon his own to himself. I don't know if you've heard the story of the Moravians, but I, I, love, I love this little anecdote. Um, in, in Northern Europe, knowing that there were natives in the Caribbean who'd never heard the gospel, and these wild-eyed, radical, wonderful Moravian missionaries would get on the boat and their families watching them leave, and that's it. That's it. They're never coming back, probably. And as the boat moves out of the harbor, you know that great line they use? May the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. These chills go up and down my back. May the lamb, this is this text, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. This is what he died for. To ransom people from every one of those tribes and languages and people and nation. And we don't, you know, if, don't get too picky about needing to precisely, anthropologically, linguistically, culturally to chop these up and figure out where is one and where is the other. And just, just let's do the best research we can do to determine who they are and then just go for it. Because I don't know, I mean, these all overlap. I tried in my book to, you know, give definitions for each one, but I wound up by saying they, they intertwine and, and overlap. Therefore, the meaning of Pantata Ethne, so I'm at the end of my arguments and I'm drawing conclusions now. The meaning of Pantata Ethne in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19, go make disciples of all 
nations, this, is that all the peoples or people groups be reached and taught, teach them. These people groups correspond to naturally cohesive groupings with ethnic and language commonalities that set them off from other groups. This, I think it's supposed to say, is why missions as the unique calling to cross from one of these to another with the gospel is an essential mandate of the church. Just a little example. This visible, sort of. This is Nigeria. So the old way that I grew up with, when I thought of the field of Nigeria, is that right there. Everybody knows what Nigeria has got borders. That's Nigeria. We need missionaries to go to Nigeria. I mean, once upon a time we did. There's a huge church there now. But, but, but this is the reality. These, these little color places, what does it say here? Over 520, can I see that? Over 520 distinct people groups, each needing a church planting movement. That's what, that's what all that represents right there. Each one of those. So if you think, oh, we've got missionaries in Nigeria, well, cool. But there are 520 distinct languages and cultures, and they don't, they don't necessarily talk to each other. You know, here's, let me put in a little parenthesis here. Um, there's a lot of people today saying that third world missionaries um, can get it done, and we don't need to go, we just pay their way, you know, because it's cheaper, and uh, there are a lot of problems with that, and I won't go into all of them, I'll just mention the one that's relevant here. You know, you take those, those 520 little groups right there, and ask about how they relate to each other. The tribal hostilities may, don't know, just may be such that the 20 miles over that mountain, they're going to kill them rather than missionize them. And that a, a missionary from Brazil will be way more effective there and one from the Philippines way more effective here than either of those from the other, even if there's a, a, a little church movement or something. So it's just a, the, the dynamic of where we how God positions his, his emissaries, his ambassadors, is not simple. I just don't buy the simplistic argument that geographic proximity means greater efficiency. It may not. And the other problem with it is that if there are Christians in the group who can evangelize the group because they already know the language, then they may be a rich people anyway. But if there is a group that doesn't have any Christians in it, then you can't talk about local evangelists doing the work that we need to get done because they can't, there's no Christian there speaking that language. Somebody's got to learn the language and learn the culture and cross over, whether it's 20 miles or whatever. I, I see Morris, Wendy's sitting back here who spent a good bit of their lives in Papua New Guinea. What is it? Papua New Guinea have like 800 languages or something, 600, I don't know. I think I read somewhere like almost 20% of the languages in the world are in Papua New Guinea. Well, Papua New Guinea is what, the size of Pennsylvania or something? I don't know how big it is. It's, it's not a big country. How can that be? Answer, mountains. <laughs> mountains. They don't go anywhere. 
I mean, I was talking to Noel the other day about how did that happen? How did that happen that in a, in a little land, you could have groups of 600 different languages within a day's walk? I just, I mean, I don't know how that happened. It's just incredible. But for missions, it's just incredibly challenging. Languages and cultures. Um, let's see where we are here. Conclusion. Oops, too big. Therefore, this mandate of missions to disciple all the peoples is not yet complete. What's left to do? The joshuaproject.net is a helpful resource to keep abreast of the progress of the mission. And here's what they say. I I cut and paste this. I think they don't mind if I do that from the joshuaproject.net. Total people groups in the world, reached and unreached, about 16,000. Unreached groups, about that, give or take. Percent unreached, 41.3%. And here it's graphically displayed. So here's our task right here. 6,000 of those people unreached. Now, let's just talk for just a minute about the definition of unreached because it's relevant. The original Joshua Project editorial committee selected the criteria of... uh, less than 2% evangelical Christian and less than 5% Christian adherence qualifies you as unreached. You know, whether that's the best definition, and, and here's the reason for that definition. It's just um, students of the church have put their heads together to say it takes a certain level of uh, critical mass in the church before they can, without the assistance of outsiders, take over the evangelization of their people group. And this is, the, this is where they've come down. About 2% evangelical, about 5%. If there, were, if there were a group like that and they were prepared and trained uh, as well as they should be, they might be able, over that, they might be able to move forward. Um, in other words, uh, you see this... I think it ran off the bottom. It's okay. There we go. The Joshua Project lists, here's another phrase. They didn't used to use this when I was back in the early 80s. This phrase right here is very helpful. Unengaged and unreached are not the same. The Joshua Project lists 1,138 peoples as unengaged. That is not no, I guess it's supposed to be no, um, no active effort is underway to reach the people group, which means that 5,752 of the unreached peoples are presently being engaged, which is very encouraging to me. I mean, back in the early 80s, that would not have been the case. Unreached and unengaged were almost the same. And we, we should thank God for some big major missionary groups that have have uh, strategically embraced unreached peoples. I went to one of these groups where they were all coming together. I'm talking Southern Baptists, YWAM, 
Wycliffe, Campus Crusade, these gigantic organizations that have together tens of thousands of missionaries around the world. And they, they put their heads together and say, what are the largest unengaged groups and how many years will it take us to engage them? And I love that. I mean, just think, that's not a very big number. I mean, what if, I mean, why wouldn't, say, a thousand churches in America have a seminar like this? You know, call for teams that just get it done. Just get it done. Now, getting it done, of course, <laughs> gonna call, you're going to give your life for this because, because these are the hardest places in the world. They don't want you to come, and they're going to kill you if you do come. So, and it doesn't change the Great Commission, does it? To make it more personal, 86% of the world's Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists have never met a Christ follower. How true that is in the Twin Cities. You know? 40 to 80,000 Somalis, we don't know what the exact number is here, and all of them are Muslim of one stripe or another. Do they even know any Christians? When we walk back and forth, are we pausing to talk? Just trying to talk to... So that makes it a little more personal for me. So the mission is not finished. And the Lord's command remains in force and urgent. Pause for a question or two. Anything at all that's been triggered in your minds by anything we've said so far before we take another 15 minutes and then we're going to stop. Yeah, okay. Matthew. Loud too, please. Of what? Oh, I see. Is, is there an effort when two tribes or peoples are evangelized to to bring them together um, because Jesus cares, according to? John 17, and I think I see where you're going, at least where I would be going if I asked that question, namely the whole homogeneous unit principle, and whether or not targeting peoples is in fact missiologically contrary to the goal of uh, there's neither uh, barbarian or Scythian, slave, free, male, female, but they're all one in Christ Jesus. Christ is all and in all. And uh, I think that targeting peoples is biblically permitted and probably mandated by implication, largely because of the language issue. If you don't talk their language, they can't understand you. If you say to an unreached people group, you get to come over and be part of this group and learn their language, you're, you're not, I don't think, honoring the word language in Revelation 5, 9, 
and you're obviously making it very hard for yourself. And there are other issues besides language, but that's the clearest cultural piece. But once, here's where I would go, once the church is established in the Hutus and Tutsis, they shouldn't kill each other. Or something's wrong. I mean, let's not be too quick to judge because we, we throw stones at Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Methodists and whatever. We have our own little ways to do this. But, but you, I, what I'm saying is merging culturally, uh, I don't think is necessarily implicit. Loving is. <coughs> Loving is. And love over time will break a lot of barriers so we got our issues in America on racial and ethnic issues, why I wrote this thing, but I'm, I'm not about to say there should be no such thing as um, ethnic cultural events, like worship, maybe, or other things where that culture is that culture. But there certainly should be efforts to love and to talk and to respect and to partner. And the forms of those, it seems to me, are many and, and endless. So that's my effort to get at the homogeneous thing. Homogeneous unit has validity at the front end, I think, in evangelism and in an ongoing way for cultural respect. But there's a, there are seeds in the gospel that are pushing things toward one another in love. And I make a whole case in here, especially with regard to the issue of inter-ethnic and interracial marriage. That's another whole issue. Um, but th- th- there's, there's kind of the bottom line cut it issue. Rubber meets the road. If, if you don't let my daughter marry your son, you're probably not going to choose to go to the same church I do. Because it just might happen. That, that issue is just right at the bottom. So I think we're moving, we're moving towards that much intimacy, that much respect, that much love, so that that kind of connectedness can happen. I mean, just imagine the tribal tensions in the world. This, there, another reason I brought this book along is because Mark struck. Mark, are you here by any chance? Okay, Mark works over at DG, travels a lot, gets out. He, he, when I did my little devotion at the National Conference, he stopped me and said, John, I wish I could get this into the hands of all, what he said, third world or majority world pastors, because it, it looks like a black-white book for America, you know, African-American and white issue, but really it's, it is the issue around the world. Ethnic, ethnic hostilities and ethnic disrespect is just the, if anything's going to blow this globe apart, it's going to be those kinds of anger and hostilities. And, and so I think even though we target groups, the goal would be move into the Hutsis, Hutus, move into the Hutsis, and, and be so powerful in establishing Christ-like churches that they no longer feel the kind of animosities they feel and begin to find ways to be friends and love. And who knows what kind of unity could emerge there culturally? I don't know. Another question, and then we'll keep going. Yeah, Blake.
uh, help, help us see where Paul and the others passed the torch to a, a next generation? Is that the idea? Well, it's sure clear where Jesus does. You know, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Um, and I'm just trying to... I'm, I'm tr- trying to think what's behind your question. Like, is, is there a great commission in Paul? Is that... Yeah, okay. That one's easier for me to answer. I need to think about the other. There are groups that deny the Great Commission. They'll say it was given to the 11, and they did it, and now it's done. And, and the preterist understanding of Revelation and the preterist understanding of Matthew 24 could go there real quick by saying, this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, was done by 70 A.D. I don't buy that interpretation. I even made notes here in case anybody asked that question. Uh, to uh, There it is. Because uh, you know, BCS cares about this, right? And um, Here's my, my main argument for why the Great Commission is still in force. Just the wording of it. Um, Go make disciples of all nations, because all authority is given to me, and lo, I am with you till 70 A.D. (laughs) Is not what it says. The promise and the commission are coextensive. That's my argument. And the promise is till the end of the age. (laughs) And if you said that means Jewish age, I'd say, no way. No way. But we'd have to do more exegesis. Of, I don't even think there is such a thing as a Jewish age. But, um, okay, we got nine minutes by my watch. Let me see what we can do in nine minutes because we're on slide whatever and I've got another hundred probably. So, um, plenty to do tomorrow. But we do want to save time for more questions tonight. This is very fruitful when you, when you push on me like that. To, to answer questions, but I think we should use these nine minutes to do something. So this next unit, um, the supremacy of Christ as the conscious focus of all saving faith. Three questions are involved in that, and there's a whole chapter on this in the book. Is there final eternal punishment um, of conscious torment? So is there hell? That's the first one. So when I say saving faith, I mean from hell into heaven eternal fellowship at God's right hand where there's pleasure. Number two, is there any other way to be saved than through the work of Christ? This is different from asking the next question. I mean, is there, is there a Buddhist and a Hindu way to be saved that doesn't need the death of Jesus? There are people who say, you need the death of Jesus, but you don't need to have heard about it to be saved. That's not what this is. This is saying, do you even need it? And the third question is, must a person hear the gospel, hear the gospel in order to be saved? So if a person dies never having heard of the gospel, what becomes of him? Is conscious faith, conscious faith necessary in Christ, necessary for salvation? So my goal in in the next few minutes is to answer a couple of those, how far we can get here in answering those questions. Here's the, the answer to the first one, and I just briefly, because this, this is not a course on hell or eschatology. Is there a final eternal punishment of conscious torment 
for those who are not saved? The answer is yes. All who dwell on the earth, this is Revelation 13, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written in the, from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. Keep that in mind. All whose names, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. So if, if your name is not written, then you're not restrained from worshiping the beast. And what happens? Here's the next text. These are building on each other. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. This is the strongest possible way to express eternal in Greek language, unto the ages of the ages, forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And then Revelation 20:15. and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Anyone whose name is not in the book of life is thrown in the lake of fire. I, I just picked those three texts because of that strong phrase right there. There's, there's a whole long chapter arguing for the reality of hell in a book on missions. And I think that's very important because we will find that one of the motives, not the only one and not the ultimate one, is compassion. You should be moved by compassion that there are millions of people or just somebody you know who's going to experience this torment forever and ever. So my answer to the first one is yes. Second, is there any other way to be saved than through the work of Jesus Christ. So this is a different question than do you need to hear about the work? I'm just arguing, is the work necessary for the salvation of any human being? And, and the answer is yes, also. Or the answer is, there is no other way. Now, here's, here's a key passage. I remember when I was preaching through Romans years ago, this just gripped me. The universality of this argument gripped me. This is Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin uh, came into the world through one man, so there's Adam, and, and sin came into the world through Adam. So he's the father of everybody. There's, this is not a tribal Adam. This is Adam. Everybody. We all have Adam as our father, Paul said in Acts 17. And death through sin. So death came through sin. That's why everybody dies. There's no tribe where people don't die. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, I think. But that's not relevant right now to my point. In many, if many died, I'm jumping to verse 15, <clears throat> if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. So now we're contrasting Adam, this man, with this Adam. One man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
So Adam got the mess started, and it infects everybody, universal. And Jesus comes in, starts a new humanity, and that's the remedy for this one. You see how universal this is. He's, he's thinking old Adam, and that's where everybody got sick, and then a, a new Adam comes in. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now that correlation in verse 19 settles it for me. This, this, this globe, this humanity, six billion people are sin-sick and hell-bound because of what went wrong in one man, Adam, and then spread to everybody. And then Jesus comes into the world not as a tribal deity, say, well, I saved Jews and others can fix, have Adam's problem solved another way. He comes and presents himself as the second Adam who is the solution to the first Adam's fall. That's a universal claim on where salvation comes from, which is why you get Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So my answer to the second question, is there any other way to be saved than through the work? Is there another work? And the answer is no, there's no other work by which people can be saved, which leads to the last question for which we do not have time. And that's okay, this is a good place to, to stop. So must a person hear the gospel in order to be saved is where we're going to start tomorrow morning. And uh, the answer to that is yes. And to make that case is not as easy. And it's very disputed by some evangelicals but we'll work on it together. Let me pray. We'll take a 15-minute break. We'll put the chairs up here, and then we'll deal with your questions for a little while. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for these friends who have given me their attention and have engaged in thought and affection for these things. And I pray, O oh God, that you would, by the Holy Spirit now, push into hearts and understanding. Clarify minds, and may we, we gain a great understanding of your world and your purpose in the world and, and uh, experience the call in our lives that you mean for us to have domestically or frontiers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Feel free to copy and distribute this message to others, but please do not charge for the content or alter it in any way. For more resources, go to DesiringGod.org.